Well, welcome. I would love to just encourage you, if I could just sit next to each of you and encourage you and tell you thank you for being here, and it's good that you're here. I don't know what your weeks are like, I don't know how your schedule is, but I'm sure it's a challenge in some way or another to get your Bible reading in worshipfully and to get your homework in and so just persevere keep coming keep putting one foot in front of the other and come back okay if you don't get your homework done don't stay away come please just come and we're so grateful you're here i want to um, talk about homework for a minute your homework that you have um on the looking day by day you want to put this on your radar now because you're going to be thinking as you're reading um, throughout these two weeks what truths have stood out to you in your Bible reading recently and then how might these truths help you walk with Christ so that you interact with your family, your household in a way that is honoring to him. So that's not a question you wait until Friday before next wellspring, right? Put that on your radar that that's something to be looking for as you're reading your Bible. Well, today's lesson is about the household. Um, We're so thrilled to have Sarah come. As you look at your wellspring logo and you see the water, you see the water, the pool and it's pooling and then filling and then overflowing into the next pool that's filling and overflowing that's what wellspring is all about we're being filled from that unseen source the word of god we're being filled and then we are pouring into our our hearts we're pouring into our household into the ministry and beyond That's what Sarah has done for years. My heart is enriched because of Sarah's influence on my life. Her fingerprints, as we like to say, her fingerprints are all over Wellspring. Now this lesson is the first lesson we're gonna have that goes beyond the heart, but it doesn't leave the heart. As you look, you'll see the household, this lesson is discipline one, And then it goes on to Discipline 2. And it has an impact, of course, on Discipline 3. So Sarah's going to be doing the um, disciplines today as well. We're really thankful for this lesson that it comes now. Now that you've had the foundation of the um, purpose of Discipline, of uh, Wellspring and how that fits in to Grace Bible Church's vision, right? And then you've learned about the transformation of man and where that all where we fit in where we are on the map you are here remember Smed talking about that and how we have this fight now we get to fight and we can and you know if we think about a fight man the household there is a big target on the back of the household isn't there The enemy is attacking the household. He always has. But it just seems like it's being ramped up. We need to go back to the truth. What does the word of God say about the household? Not 
what does the world say? Uh, not what do I think? Because our heart was not designed to be at its own authority, right? Our heart was designed to have the word of God to be its authority. And I was, I was reading this morning Psalm 15. Psalm 15 starts verse 1. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works, and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Well, ladies, that's what it's all about, speaking truth in our heart. What is truth? God's word. John 17, 17, right? Thy word is truth. Let's never, ever veer from that. Let's keep ourselves on the rock of truth. And let's remind each other about that. Our hearts are so easily deceived. And we just want to run away from that. No, stay there. So that's why we need this lesson. So let me pray. And then we'll have Sarah come up and um, you get ready. You get ready to have a real treat and learn so much. I'm so excited. So will you pray with me? Father God, it's only because of the finished work of Christ on the cross that we can come boldly to your throne, the throne of grace. For we do have a great high priest in heaven who is interceding for us, who is well, well familiar. You know our trials and you know our troubles. Father, you know each woman here. You know the household that woman is living in, whether all by herself, still under mom and dad's roof, with a roommate, empty nester, or a house full. You know. And God, we know your plan for the household is good and is wise. And we should heed it. So God, make us attentive now to every word that we're going to hear. Help us to just stop all the busy thoughts that are swirling through our minds of all that we need to get done at 9.15 and how the rest of the weekend is going to unfold. Help us now, Lord, to calm our thoughts, to wake up our brains, and to be the most excellent listeners. And we pray with great thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. It's a blessing to be here. I recognize most of your faces. If I have not had the privilege of meeting you, though, I would love it if afterwards you would come up and introduce yourself because it always bothers me when I see faces that I haven't met. Um, I, we're a body, and I, we need to know each other. So I would really appreciate that. Um, I do want to pray again, but before I do that, I want to just give you um, a little uh, maybe reassurance about the notes. You might have looked and thought, oh my goodness, that's quite the book. 
You know, we got a novel that we're going through this morning. Um, just like Smedley said last week, it, it's these, these verses, these, excuse me, these lessons where we're really getting an overview of a discipline. They are a fire hose. They just are because God's word is so rich. There is so much there and it is so hard to leave anything out. And I'm not good at that. Um, but I wanted you to have complete notes. We actually will skip some of them. But this is a survey, and so as we go through, I want to encourage you, if there is a verse, a passage that stands out and you think, oh, that's a point I need to think more about, or ah, that one is really encouraging, that's going to fortify me to be faithful in my home, or that's something, I, there's some sin there I need to repent of, whatever it is. Put a little star by those so that when it comes time to reflect on the lesson, pray about it, apply it, answer your homework questions, you already have some little pointers in your notes to help you go back to those verses that made an impression when you first heard it. So this is a, re- this is a resource. We are going to cover most of it, um, but I just hopefully that maybe takes... Uh, a little bit of the fear away if you thought, my goodness, there's no way I can listen to this many verses. You can't, because you're going to. Here you are. Okay. And I so appreciate Lori's praying, but I just need to pray again. So if you'll pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Lord, you are the one who lights up the sky anew each day. And Lord, it just reminds us that your mercies are new every morning and that your faithfulness is great. Lord, if you kept a record of wrongs, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Father, I do pray that this morning you would let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. And you would let your word go forth with power And with conviction and with your spirit, you would let it go forth that way and you would let it be heard and received that way. Help each one of us, Lord, not just to have our eyes open and our ears pointed up here, but Lord, please help each one of us to purposely incline our hearts to you, to yield to you, um, to be responsive to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Well, typically, when you come to Wellspring, you'll begin by turning your notebook over, but you don't need to. We're not going to start that way today. We're actually going to end that way today. So we'll come back to the Wellspring disciplines. Now, the last lesson laid a biblical foundation for discipline one. By understanding who we are in Christ, we've concluded two things. Um, that We are in a mixed condition in which we can shepherd our hearts. And we must shepherd our hearts, right? Smedley said that at the beginning of the lesson last week. Okay, it's going to be a fire hose, but if you don't remember anything else, remember this. Okay, that's, that's what we've seen. Our hearts have abilities and desires and resources for good, for loving and obeying God. And our hearts desperately need constant tending with God's word because we are still terribly prone to sin. Now today, we get to lay a biblical foundation for discipline two, the home. And we're gonna see something very similar. The household and the family also have many opportunities for good. 
There are many ways in which God has designed the household and the family as a place to serve him and to glorify him. And it has great vulnerabilities. The household also must be carefully tended with God's word. God's word needs to direct how we live in our households, and it needs to be how we care for those in our households. So that is how these lessons connect, the first lesson and the second lesson. So today, by way of introduction, we will first talk about how family words are used to describe relationships in God's household. And then we'll look at various kinds of households in God's word. And then we'll spend the bulk of our time surveying God's word, looking at what God has to tell us about the household and family. And we'll finish by reviewing the Wellspring purpose and disciplines, because that really is how we need to respond to what God's word tells us about the household and family. All right, so let's look at B on the worksheet. As I read these verses, notice the family words and how they're being used to describe relationships in God's household. Psalm 103.13 says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So here the father-child relationship helps us understand the Lord's compassion on his people. Isaiah 62.5 says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. The joy of marriage is a picture of God's joy over his people. Mark, in Mark 1.11, God the Father says to Jesus, You are my beloved Son. Father-son language shows us something about the relationship between the first and second persons of the Godhead. And Jesus uses this same language when he prays in Matthew 26, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. In 1 John 3.1, we read, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God? Here, the father-child relationship describes God's relationship with believers and its evidence of his great love. In Matthew 12, Jesus said, For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. So now Jesus uses family relationships to describe not only his relationship with his Father, but also his relationship with his followers. And in 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Now you might not be surprised to hear words like father and son and children, brother and sister used to describe relationships in God's household. But have you ever thought of singleness also being a picture of relationships in God's household? That's what's in view here with the words betrothed and pure virgin. John MacArthur explains this verse by saying that as their spiritual father, Paul portrayed the Corinthians like his daughter whom he had betrothed 
to Jesus Christ at their conversion. Having betrothed or pledged them to Christ, Paul wanted them to be pure until their marriage day finally arrived. And Revelation 19.7 describes that marriage. It says, The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. So not only does God use marriage as a picture of Christ's relationship with the church right now, we're going to look, more, look at that more when we get to Ephesians 5, but he also uses our seasons of singleness as a picture of the church waiting expectantly for Jesus to return for her. So this is just a sampling of verses that, that show how God uses family relationships to point to much greater relationships, eternal relationships within the Godhead, between God and his people, and between believers. And that gives a special significance to our household and family relationships. These relationships point to something far beyond us, when these relationships are functioning well, they give us a glimpse of God's love and care for his people. And these relationships also give us a place where we get to demonstrate the love and the grace of God, which we have received in the gospel. So now let's look at part C. What do you think of when you think of your family or your household? It might be people you live with or people you grew up with. It might be people you've raised and have moved away, or it could include extended family. Now, in today's world, many voices are seeking to redefine the family, but that is not what we're doing here. The family is God's creation. He alone has the right to define the family. And in the Bible, God describes a number of different kinds of families and households. Now, as we look at these, you have these on page two of your notes. Um, we are not saying that we can define the household any way we want, but rather we need to see the unique opportunities that God has for each of us in whatever household or family he has placed us in, in each season of our lives. So here's a sampling of households found in God's word. There is marriage. This was part of God's original creation with Adam and Eve. Before the fall, the only family on earth consisted of a husband and wife. There's also the nuclear family. Sadly, there are unloved wives. There are extended families. Um, we have a mother and daughter-in-law, Naomi and Ruth, forming their own little household when they were both widowed. There is remarriage and intercultural marriage. There's adoption. There are many families that struggled with infertility. Anna was a widow who never remarried. We find multi-generational families. And we even have adult siblings forming their own household with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lydia was probably a single woman functioning as the head of her household. And there were marriages in which one spouse was a believer and the other was not. And we're taught that single women and single men have unique opportunities for undistracted devotion to the Lord because of different family responsibilities than those who are married. Tabitha and Phoebe may have been women for whom this was the case. 
So every family and household situation comes with its own challenges and opportunities. All have been impacted by sin and its consequences ever since the fall in Genesis 3. But the household and family are nonetheless God's design. And in his mercy, he has ordained that the household and family, whatever yours looks like, to be an essential place where you get to serve him and worship him, where you get to know him and make him known. Now, I read something this week that I hope will encourage us to incline our hearts to the Lord and his design for our particular household and family. This was in an article uh, that Tim Challies shared that he wrote, that he published. Um, and the title of the article was, Could There Be a Worse Home Than This? And he quotes um, a man by the name of Theodore Kyler, uh, who said, We speak a great deal, especially at Christmas time, of the condescension of the eternal Son of God in coming to earth to be born in a stable and cradled in a manger. Is it a less wonderful condescension for the Holy Spirit to make your heart his home and to live there as your guest? Think what a place a human heart is. Think of the unholy thoughts and desires, the impure things, the unlovingness, the jealousy, the bitterness, the hate, all the sin of our hearts. And then think of the love of the Spirit, which makes him willing to live in such a place in order to cleanse us and make us godly and holy. The love of the Spirit is shown in his wondrous patience with us, in all our sinfulness, while he lives in us and deals with us in the culturing of our Christian life. So sisters, if the Holy Spirit condescends to make his home in us, may we yield all the more gladly to be his instruments in our home and our family. By his grace, he has purchased new life for us at the cross. And as new creations, we get to make much of him in our households and families. So now let's move to Roman numeral two. We're going to survey what God has to say about the household as we walk through our Bibles from left to right, from Old Testament to New Testament. Now you have a box, I think it's is on the bottom of page two, um, and this box lists different themes related to the household. The first one is plans, referring to God's design and purposes for the household and family. Promises includes promises God makes to families and fulfills through families. Problems reveal the impact of sin on the household and family, the vulnerabilities of the household to sin. Priorities will cover responsibilities and opportunities related to the household and family. Protection shows us ways in which God mercifully preserves the family, even at various points of judgment throughout history. And position is where we see that as important as the family is, God must be honored in and above the household and family. The family is subordinate to God. God has a position over the family. 
Now we can think of these various themes as different colored threads in a tapestry which get woven together throughout the pages of scripture. At times we'll see God's plan for the household. At other times we'll see that problems thread and so on with each of these themes. These themes or threads, if you will, are all woven together in the pages of scripture and together they show us God's heart for the household. And so your notes are organized in a table. The theme or the thread is next to the Bible reference and then you have a column that shows significant people or events in that passage and then you have that final column where you can take notes. So go ahead and open up your Bible to Genesis 1. So from the very beginning, we see the thread of God's plan for the family. God is the one who created the family, he defined the family, and he gave purpose to the family. So we'll begin with Genesis 1.27. This is on day six of creation. You look at this last time as well. One, Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then in verse 28, he commands the man and the woman to be fruitful and to fill and rule the earth. So Genesis 1 shows us that men and women are equally created in the image of God and that together they are to be fruitful. They are to fill and rule the earth. Now Genesis 2, you can go ahead and turn there. Genesis 2 gives us details of day 6 of creation and explains how the man and woman are going to fill the earth. In verse 18, God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So God took one of the man's ribs, and in verse 22, he fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And verse 24 explains God's purpose in doing that. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. From the very beginning, God established the family, beginning with marriage, as the first and most fundamental relationship of society, one in which two distinct people, one man and one woman, become one flesh. <coughs> this first family, the only family to ever exist before sin entered the world, was a husband and a wife. And it was through that family that mankind would be fruitful to fill and rule the earth. Genesis 2 shows us that God created men and women to have distinct roles. The husband is the head of his wife. We'll see in Ephesians 5 that a man is to imitate Christ's self-giving love as he leads his wife. And the wife is to be a suitable helper for her husband, imitating the church's submission and devotion to Christ out of reverence for Christ. We'll study that more closely when we get to Ephesians 5, but it's important to see that this was God's good design for the family from the beginning, before sin ever even entered the world, to display something very impressive about his relationship with his people. Husband and wife, equally created in God's image, but with different roles. 
the family is God's mean, God's means for people to fill and rule the earth. So Genesis 1 and 2 display the thread of God's plan for the household. Now in Genesis 3, the problems thread emerges. The serpent tempted the first family by saying to Eve in verse 1, Indeed, has God said? Insinuating that God could not be trusted. Eve allowed herself to be deceived. She and Adam both ate the forbidden fruit. And the whole world, world fell headlong under the dominion and the curse of sin. And all of creation, including the family, has been plagued by sin ever since. Sin brought curses and consequences from God that impacted the family. Pain came to childbirth, and sweat and toil came to provision. But as devastating as sin was and is to all of creation, nonetheless, God again shines forth his plan. In Genesis 3.15, we find that God's plan includes a a promise to provide a seed, a descendant of this family who would crush the serpent, the devil. This is the first promise in scripture pointing to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now in Genesis 4, the family begins to fulfill God's plan for fruitfulness with the birth of children. Genesis 4.1 says the man had relations with his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. Verse 2 tells us that she then had another son, Abel. God was giving them what they needed to fill the earth. And he was also continuing the family line through which the promised seed, the Messiah, would come. Well, tragically, the problem thread quickly re-emerges in Genesis 4. This first family was again scarred by sin when Cain killed Abel, brother murdering brother. In Genesis 5, God's faithfulness to his promise is seen in the record of Adam's descendants through his son, Seth. Here, God marks history by recording the generations of this family. This historical record would be a way in which future generations could trace God's faithfulness to send the Messiah. In Genesis 6-9, through God judged the world through a flood. In the midst of this judgment, God extended mercy by protecting Noah and his family on the ark and thus also protecting the family line of the promised Messiah. In Genesis 10 and 11, we again see God's merciful protection of families. Noah's descendants sought to pridefully disobey God's plan for them to fill the earth. They wanted instead to make a name for themselves by building a great tower. Consequently, God thwarted their efforts by confusing their language and scattering them over the whole earth. But when he did this, he dispersed them by families. Genesis Genesis 10.5 gives us one example of this. From these, and he's referring to the sons of Japheth, who was one of Noah's sons, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, every one according to his language, according to their families. What a kind protection from the Lord. Family groups stayed together and could communicate with one another, even after God's judgment at Babel. Well, continuing through Genesis, chapter 12 shows us that as important as the household and family are, it nonetheless must take a position under 
God's authority. Genesis 12.1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. God called Abram to leave his relatives and his father's house. Family ties were not a reason for him not to go, to not obey God. The family must be subordinate to God. Also in Genesis 12, as well as in chapter 17, God continues to work out his promise to send a Messiah when he makes a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. Genesis 17, 19 says, I will establish my covenant with him. He's referring to Isaac, Abraham's son, for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So God made a covenant with Abraham and all of the generations of his family which would follow him. And this covenant includes, in Genesis 12, 3, in you, referring to Abraham and his descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So that blessing was another expression of God's promise to send the Messiah. The Messiah would come through Abraham's family. The Messiah would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And Galatians 3.8 explains what that blessing is when it says, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, <clears throat> All the nations will be blessed in you. This blessing is indeed the gospel, salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So already, we've seen a lot of different threads related to the household. God's plan for the family, the problem of sin, God's promise of a Messiah who would crush the serpent, and God's protection of the family so that he can fulfill his promise. Um, and, as important as the family is, the position God must have over the family. The family must be subordinate to God. And together, these, these threads are weaving for us a picture of what God wants us to know about the household and family. And in Genesis 18, we see a new thread. What is God's priority for the family and household? What are our responsibilities? Well, Genesis, in Genesis 18, God said regarding Abraham, I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. God designed the family and the household to be a place where people are taught to know and follow the Lord. As God is honored and obeyed in the home, the people in that household are taught the goodness of his character and his righteous rule over all that he has made. But Abraham's family is not immune to problems. In his family, we again see the vulnerability of the family to sin and how the sin of even one member of the family brings danger and harm to the others. In Genesis 12 and then again in Genesis 20, Abraham brought great strife and harm to his family through his sin and unbelief. He lied, saying his wife was just his sister, exposing her to the advances of other men. In Genesis 16, Sarah, his wife, also brought great harm to their family when, rather than trusting God to keep his promises, she trusted in her own scheme 
and told Abraham to take her maid as his concubine in an effort to produce an heir. Abraham then listened to his wife rather than leading her to trust God, and he took Hagar as his concubine, um, and in doing so, he introduced strife into his household and into the world that continues to this day. Though both Abraham and Sarah are commended for their faith, nonetheless, their sin brought great harm to their family. Now, thankfully, Abraham's sin couldn't take away his faith or undo God's promises. God's position of rightful authority over the family is again seen in Genesis 22. In verse 2, God said to Abraham, to Abraham, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and offer him as a burnt offering. Not only was Isaac's Isaac, Abraham's beloved son. He was the son through whom God had promised to fulfill his covenant with Abraham. But Abraham trusted the Lord, and he obeyed, even at the risk of losing his son. He understood that he must not let even his love for his family hinder his trust and submission to the Lord. And his obedience resulted in blessing for his family, in Genesis 22:16, the Lord said, Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you. Abraham's family illustrates for us both the harm that sin brings to the family as well as the blessing that can come from faith-filled obedience and submission to God's rightful position of authority. So these threads appear over and over again. There is a repeated contrast between the effects of sin on the household and the effects of faith. When God's position is honored, his character is trusted, and his commands are obeyed. For example, in Genesis 39 through 50, several generations after Abraham, Jacob's family was riddled with sin. There was deceit, rivalry, sexual immorality, favoritism, and hatred. The brothers' hatred for their brother Joseph ultimately led them to selling him into slavery. But as Joseph honored God's position, trusting him and his sovereignty, God used him to save the lives of his entire extended family, including the lives of those brothers who had done him such harm. And in saving this family, God again preserved the family line of the promised Messiah. Now that's just the book of Genesis. <laughs> so we're going to pick up the pace. Um, <laughs> and yet, over and over again, it is clear that the family is the fundamental unit ordained by God for many good purposes on the earth for filling the earth, for bringing the Messiah who will bless all the families of the earth, for instruction in the ways of the Lord, teaching those in the household to know him and obey him. It's a means for provision and protection. And at the same time, the family suffers under the consequences of sin. And very often, they are self-inflicted blows. As we continue through scripture, we find in Exodus that several generations after Jacob's family moved to Egypt, Pharaoh began to oppress them. 
but God continued to protect this family from which the promised Messiah would come. He raised up a deliverer for them in Moses and led them out of Egypt to Mount Sinai. And there he made a new additional covenant with Jacob's family, a family that had grown into a nation. In this covenant, the Mosaic covenant, God continued to show the importance which he places on the household and family. He protects households and families with his wise instructions. For example, in the Ten Commandments, children are commanded to honor their parents. Adultery is forbidden, and God's people must not covet other people's households. The Mosaic Covenant also expresses God's priorities for the household. The household was where Israel was to pass on the remembrance of God's mighty deeds for future generations. Families were to observe feasts such as the Passover together, remembering God's care and, and protection. Now go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy 6 with me. This is the same passage you looked at in your homework. Just as we saw with Abraham, under the Mosaic Covenant, the household in Israel was to be a place where faith was lived out in word and deed, where those in the household were instructed in the ways of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, 4-7 through 7 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Now, just, I want to help you get in the habit. When you're reading your Bible, I hope as you get into Wellspring and you understand the disciplines more, that you look at that and you say, oh, that's an example of discipline one. That's what they're doing. They're loving God. They're fueling their love for God by keeping God's word in their heart. And then look what comes next. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. That's an example of? discipline too, right? Okay, the household was to be a place that revolved around God's words, where God's people led their own hearts to love and trust and obey the Lord so that they could lead their households to do the same. Now, at the same time, God warned Israel about dangers to the home, ways in which problems would come to the household if they were not careful to obey the Lord. In Deuteronomy 7, he forbade them from intermarrying with those who do not follow the one true God. In Deuteronomy 7, 3, it says, The foreign wives will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. See, an unbelieving spouse can turn those in the home away from following the Lord. This is a distortion of God's design for the household. Rather than being a place where God is reverenced and obeyed, it can become a place of idolatry and rebellion against the one true God. Now, when we get to the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 7, we will see that scripture has more to say specifically to a believer who is already married to an unbeliever. And there is hope and encouragement for that believer. But nonetheless, for the believer who is not married, this is a serious warning. We must not underestimate the danger of entering into marriage 
with one who is not committed to following Christ. God also warned Israel that the household can be the very place where God is forgotten. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses describes a time when they will be living in the promised land and their households will prosper. And he says in verse 11, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments. So here's that problems thread again. The household that God would give them in the promised land where he would bless them so richly, that would become the very place that could easily forget God. And they needed to be aware of that so that they could guard against that, just as we must also be aware of that danger so that we can guard against that. It's very easy to forget God in the home. Again and again, we see these threads that the household is vulnerable to sin, and yet it's this place with great privileges and opportunities when we submit our homes to the Lord and embrace his priorities for us. Now, in the era of the kings, you find the, the era of the kings is recorded in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles in your Bibles. There are many examples of righteous influences within the household, as well as examples of sins devastating effect consequences on the household, and oftentimes in the very same household. First Samuel two brings us back to the problem thread. Eli, who was a judge and a priest in Israel, failed to restrain his sons from sin in their temple service. And God said in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 27, Why do you honor your sons above me? See, in allowing his sons to continue in sin, verse 30 says Eli was despising God. He didn't give God his rightful position in the family. As a consequence, God judged Eli's house, his family, forever. This family was entrusted with the great privilege of serving in the temple, but even they were not immune to sin and its consequences. Now, right alongside the problems thread, though, we see the priorities thread as God's people trust and obey him. Woven together with Eli's story, we find the account of Hannah. In 1 Samuel 1 and 2, Hannah bore the heartache of childlessness as well as being provoked by her husband's other wife. But Hannah sought the Lord in her affliction. She prayed and worshipped the Lord, and she didn't allow the hardships of her family life to take her away from the priority of trusting the Lord. Hannah encourages us that the Lord is sufficient for us, regardless of our family situation. We can pour out all our heartache to him and continue in obedience. Even when we are sinned against in our households, there are opportunities for us to glorify the Lord as we trust in him. Abigail is another example of a woman who honored God's priority for her, to trust him and protect her household. In 1 Samuel 25, we find that she was married to a harsh, worthless, foolish man who insulted David and incited David to seek his own revenge. But through her wisdom and humble faith in the Lord, 
her household was preserved from destruction, and the future king was restrained from sin. Abigail encourages us that there is no household that can't benefit from our trusting obedience in the Lord. Now let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. Here, we will see that even an enslaved child in the home of her captor had an opportunity for godly influence. Beginning in 2 Kings 5.1, Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Now just think of what has happened to a family here. A family in Israel had a young daughter, just a little girl the scripture calls her who was kidnapped and enslaved by a foreign army. I don't think we can even begin to grasp the anguish of that. How terrifying for that child. And yet, even as a servant, a slave to her captor, we don't see fear or hostility or anger. This little girl wanted good for her master. As a result, Naaman received not only healing, but something much greater. He came to know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel, and that he alone is worthy of worship. All because of the faithfulness of this little Israelite slave girl in his home. Now, the only way that that little girl could have responded to her circumstances as she did was if her family had taught her to trust and follow the one true God. So let that be an encouragement to us. We must have no greater priority in our home than to cultivate in those who live there a strong confidence in God's faithfulness. And we must also be challenged by this little girl. If she could respond by doing good to this man of all people, how much more can we rely on God's grace to do good to those in our households? Now, go ahead and turn to 2 Chronicles 22 with me. This was one of the darkest times in the history of God's people, and respect for God's purposes in the household had been completely trampled on. The problem thread all but takes over the family. Now, just to give you some context, in 1 Kings 16, Ahab, the king of the northern kingdom, also called Israel, married Jezebel, a foreign wife who was a Baal worshiper. Now remember, we saw God's warning against that back in Deuteronomy 7. 
in 1 Kings 21-25, we find a description of the terrible influence she had on her husband. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. What an indictment. But if that were not enough, they had a daughter, Athaliah, who married into the royal family of Judah, the southern kingdom. And sadly, she brought her sin, the sinful influence of her family with her, and her husband did evil in the sight of the Lord because of her, evil that included murdering his brothers. Now, predictably, their son Ahaziah also did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, 2 Chronicles 22, where I had you turn, picks up with what happened in this family after Ahaziah, their son, was killed. <clears throat> Verse 10 says, Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was destroyed, or excuse me, was dead, she rose and destroyed all, all the royal offspring of the house of Judah. She killed her grandchildren so that she could reign over the land. She very nearly succeeded in extinguishing the line of David, the line of the promised Messiah. But she is just one link in a chain of evil working in these royal families. These families had long since departed from following the Lord. But in the midst of this wickedness, we find a courageous woman. Verse 11 says, but Jehoshabeth, the king's daughter, she was probably Athaliah's stepdaughter, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death. Verse 12 says he, Joash, was hidden with them, that would be with Jehoshabeth and with her husband who was a priest, in the house of God for six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. Jehoshabeth was God's courageous, faithful instrument to protect the family line of the promised Messiah. Ultimately, her nephew Joash was made king, Athaliah was killed, and the throne of Judah was returned to David's family line. Now, those are just a few examples from the time of the kings, but we find the same threads. God's position to be honored in the, above the family and in the family, sin's awful impact in the household and family, and the influence of that faith in God has in the household and family, even in households plagued by sin. So let's keep on moving through the pages of scripture. I'm going to let you look at Psalm 78 on your own. Um, we, if you, you might remember that Kyle Frazee preached a whole sermon on that just a few weeks ago. You might want to go back and listen to that. But it's a wonderful example of God's priority for the household and family to train up each successive generation to know the Lord. It's such a privilege. Um, but let's go ahead and uh, move along and talk about Proverbs. So here is a book that is full of wisdom for the household. It reveals God's priorities for the household. And heeding his wisdom provides protection for the household. Proverbs itself is instruction from a father for his children. In Proverbs, parents are taught to teach and discipline their children so that their children will learn the fear of the Lord, both and both doctrinal as well as practical wisdom. 
Children are exhorted to carefully heed and treasure wise instruction from their parents. Proverbs also instructs us in what makes a godly husband or a godly wife. Proverbs 31 describes an excellent wife and her commitment to the good of her family and household. And Proverbs also warns of the harm that comes to a household when God's wisdom is rejected. Well, that we're going to go ahead and jump over the, the time of the prophets and move on into the New Testament now. You can go ahead and turn to Matthew 10. as we turn to the New Testament, we come to the Gospels and the fulfillment of the seed promise in Jesus Christ. In Matthew 1, Jesus is identified as the Messiah by his family line. Jesus was also raised in a family, and he lived in subjection to his earthly parents. But that's not the end of the family. As we continue in the New Testament, we find the same threads we've been seeing from the beginning. The position of God above and within the family is seen in the Gospels. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. So Jesus is making a strong point that in the gospel of the, that the gospel of the kingdom is first. And everything else is second, including our family. When one person in a household comes to Christ, they get to take the gospel to their family and household. And sometimes whole families come to know Christ. But Jesus is teaching that that is not always the case. When we bring the gospel to our family, we might find that the members of our household become our enemies. And if the family begins to stand in the way of a believer's faithfulness to God, that believer must follow Christ and not the family, even though the believer stays in that family, loving others, and obeying Jesus. The family and household relationships must be positioned under the gospel and our identity in Christ. So what does that mean practically? Well, if we position our identity in Christ under our family identity, then we're going to find ourselves using our family as an excuse for disobedience and sin. We saw that with Eli when he honored his sons above God. We might justify sinful patterns in our life or in our home based on how we were raised, like, well, I just come from a line of hot tempers. But when we place our family identity under our identity in Christ, then it's Christ's work in us that gets brought into our household and not the other way around. That needs to be the direction of influence. There's no better way to love those in our household than to keep our affections for Christ 
first in our hearts. Faithfulness to Christ is the most loving thing we can do for our household, even if following Christ makes us their enemy. Now in Luke 8, we see an example of a man whose love for Christ caused him to proclaim the truth in his household. In Luke 8, 26, Jesus sailed to the Gerasenes, and he was met by a demon-possessed man who was totally out of control. When Jesus commanded the demon to leave the man, the man came to his senses, and he was sitting at Jesus' feet. As Jesus was preparing to leave, the man begged to go with him. But Jesus answered him in verse 39, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. See, Jesus wanted this man to proclaim what Christ had done in his home. Now, as we turn to the book of Acts, we do see an example that in some cases, God draws whole households to follow Jesus. Go ahead and turn to Acts 10. Here we are going to see the priority of gospel proclamation and influence. In Acts 10.1 we read, Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household. So Cornelius and his Gentile household were worshipers of the one true God, but they hadn't heard about Jesus yet. In a vision, Cornelius was directed by an angel to send for Peter to bring a message. And so he did. And when Peter arrived, verse 24 says, Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. When Cornelius knew that God had a message for him, he didn't keep it for himself. He called together his relatives and friends to hear it too. And in verse 33, Cornelius said, We're all here present before God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. So Peter preached the gospel to them. He proclaimed forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. And verse 44 says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. Acts 11.1 1 says that they received the word of God. They were born again. They came to faith in Christ, and they were baptized. Cornelius brought his family and his friends together to hear the gospel, and the Lord was pleased to save them all. And sometimes that's what the Lord does. He uses one person in a household to influence others for the gospel, and sometimes whole households are saved. Do you see that impact that one person can make on a household because we love the Lord Jesus and we love his word? We can't save anyone, right? But we have a message that does save, that can change hearts. And we have the privilege of bringing that message to the people in our family and household. That needs to be our desire and our priority. We need to yield ourselves to the Lord to plead with him to work in us and through us in such a way that our whole household can be exposed to the greatness of God and the goodness of following Jesus. But 
just because one person in a household puts their faith in Christ, that's not a guarantee that the others in the household will also follow him. And God's word also tells us how to live faithfully for him in our homes when that happens. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul makes clear that the priority for the believer, his plan for the believer, is to be faithful to God no matter our station in life. No matter if we're married or if we're single, no matter if our husband is a believer or if he's not a believer. God is the one who appoints our station in each season of our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that our, our, station, our season won't change, our circumstances won't change, but each one of us, in whatever station we find ourselves, need to focus on being a light for Jesus right where he's put us. Now, specifically, what does that mean for a believer married to an unbeliever? Well, on one hand, we saw in Deuteronomy that there is a great potential for harm to a household if a believer disobediently marries an unbeliever. However, when there is a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, perhaps one of them gets saved after they're married. God graciously uses that believer to be a protective influence on those in her household. Just such a mercy of the Lord. So reading in 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 12, we see, If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send that husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. So the work of God in his people is so powerful that it can have a sanctifying effect on unbelievers in the home. Now that is not a promise that they will necessarily be saved. But the influence of the believer's life and their reverence for God and their obedience to his word will help inform the consciences of those in the household that they will be restrained from living as sinfully as they would otherwise. So in faithfulness to God, the believer stays in the home as she humbly follows Jesus. Now turn to Ephesians 5. As we continue through the New Testament, we find specific commands related to the family, just as we did in the Old Testament. And these commands not only provide protection and show us God's priorities, but they also enable us to fulfill God's plan for the household. Now, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, unpacks God's design for marriage. We saw way back in Genesis that even before sin entered the world, um, that God had different roles for men and women in the home. Ephesians 5 shows us the exalted purpose of these roles. Marriage is a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. Now Ephesians 5, 25 through 31, describe how the husband is to love his wife, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ is a husband's example for how to protect and provide for his wife, to be one with his wife. What an incredible calling to love his wife as Christ loves the church. So ladies, this is not a place for us to judge the men around us, right? And this is a really high call. I wouldn't want anybody 
uh, evaluating me on that standard. Rather, we need to look back at this passage and encourage one another with how wives get to imitate the church's love for Christ and thus do everything that we can to make our husband's role a joy for them. So how do we do that? Well, Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So a wife imitates the church's love for Christ by submitting to her husband. She willingly lines herself up under his authority in obedience to Christ, in trust in Christ. Just as the church gladly trusts Jesus to be her head, to lead her and to shepherd her, the wife gladly trusts Jesus to lead her through her husband. And so she lines herself up under her husband, living cooperatively and in unity as far as obedience to Christ will allow. Ephesians 5 has another instruction for wives by which we put the church's relationship to Christ on display. Verse 33 says, The wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now that word respect is literally the word fear. But this is not a cowering fear, like being afraid of your husband. Rather, it's better understood as affectionately bending ourselves humbly and carefully to our husbands. And this kind of respect is the attitude behind our submission. This is the role God designed in which we get to display the church's great trust and love for her King Jesus. Now the importance of the command for a wife to submit to her husband, to willingly line herself up under her husband, can't be overstated. It occurs here in Ephesians 5, and it's repeated in 1 Peter 3 and in Titus 2. In fact, Titus 2.5 ties our submission to our husband to protecting God's word from dishonor. It's that important. But before we continue, it will be helpful if we just pause here and summarize the Bible's instructions for wives towards their husbands. This, is, this takes nothing away from submission, but if we talk about submission... Are we I'm sorry, if we talk only about submission or we emphasize submission to the exclusion of the other roles that God has for wives, it will cheat us of understanding this multifaceted role that God gives to wives in relation to their husbands. So the first role we saw for wives was back in Genesis 2.18, where God created Eve to be a suitable helper for her husband. The Proverbs 31 woman, the excellent wife, is one who does her husband good and not harm all the days of her life. In all that she does, she's considering whether her choices will benefit her husband. 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2 repeats the commands we saw in Ephesians 5 to both submit to her husband as well as respect her husband. Coupling the command to respect our husband with the command to um, excuse me, to respect our husband with the command to submit to him, uh, really holds us accountable on a heart level. There's no room here in God's word for an outward show of submission 
while maintaining a grumbling or critical attitude in our submission. And finally, the wife is commanded to love her husband. In Titus 2, 3 through 5, the first way in which women are to be encouraged is to love their husbands. They are to have a fond affection for their husbands, gladly extending their friendship to their husband with self-giving love, pouring out on them, their husband, the gracious, undeserved love which has been lavished on us by Jesus Christ. The wife lavishes that love on her husband. So that is just a really broad brush summary of how God has for a wife to live in relation to her husband. And we want to hold them all together and care for our husband and for our marriage in a way that shows our faith in Christ. Okay, Ephesians 6 speaks to God's priorities for parents and children. Ephesians 6.1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now, this is a repeat of the fifth commandment out of the Ten Commandments, now brought under the authority of Christ for the church. Paul first addresses children. Obey your parents in the Lord. We must help our children obey and honor their parents as a way of honoring the Lord. And then verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. God's priority for parents is to show our children how great God is, to bring God's word to them with joy and wonder and an eagerness to know and obey God ourselves even as we teach our children to know and obey God. Our own earnestness to follow Jesus, not perfectly, but growing in our faith and our obedience, humbly repenting of sin, together with faithful biblical parenting, will guard us from unnecessarily provoking our children to anger. Now, the New Testament also makes a priority of honoring and caring for our parents as adult children. I will look at, let you look at those references um, there, like 1 Timothy 5.4, um, for yourself. But the principle over and over again is the same, that a believer's relationship with the Lord must inform and influence all of the household and family relationships in every season of life. Go ahead and turn to Titus 2. This is a key passage in our Bibles about women and understanding how God wants us to function in our homes and in our church with each other. Now, in in November, you'll get a whole lesson on these verses. But for now, let's notice in particular what it says about the household and family. Titus 2, verse 3, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women. And now comes a list of ways in which they're to encourage the young women. And notice what a big role a woman's role in her house and her her family relationships has here. Older women are to encourage young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that... The word of God will not be dishonored. 
Do you see how faithfulness in our household influences how others think about God's word? We simply cannot miss the high priority God places on how we live out our faith in our household. It's also so important that it's a qualification for elder leadership. 1 Timothy 3 verses 2 through 5 say that in order to be elder qualified, a man must be faithful in his marriage and he must manage his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. That is how important household relationships are to God. They are a measure of a man's qualification to lead others in the church. Now I'm going to let you look at Titus 1 and 2 Timothy 3 on your own, but these passages again show us the problems thread, the vulnerability of the household to sin, and the importance of guarding our hearts and our households from false teaching and sinful influences. So finally, God has important purposes for the household in the life of the church. In Acts 2.46, believers shared meals together in their homes. The gospel was proclaimed from house to house in Acts 5.42. In Acts 12.12, Mary, the mother of John Mark, hosted a prayer meeting in her home when Peter was in prison. Lydia welcomed Paul and Silas into her home. The household of Stephanus devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. And households hosted churches and gave lodging to gospel ministers. Very often, our homes are where body life happens, where believers live out the one another's of scripture together. Even in homes where not everyone is a believer, there are wonderful opportunities to show the unbelievers in the home the sweet fellowship that believers share with one another. So the household doesn't exist just for itself. God's priority for the home is to be his instrument in the life of the church as well. So we have seen today that the home is God's design, and he has built into the home many opportunities to put his work in our lives on display and to influence others with our love for God. The household matters to God. What a privilege to honor God in our homes, living out the roles he has for us, declaring his greatness in evangelism and discipleship, serving others, and protecting from sinful influences. But how can we ever live up to such a high calling? How can we walk in humble wisdom like Abigail, or trusting faith like Hannah, or loving concern like Naaman's slave girl? Well, we can only do so through ongoing reliance upon the Lord and his grace. And so that brings us to the Wellspring Disciplines. Go ahead and turn over your binder now so you can see the Wellspring purpose and disciplines there. <clears throat> so the theme verse for Wellspring is Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Our heart, our inner man, who we are inwardly before God, is the source of everything that comes out of us. And so faithful living in our homes must be fueled by diligent care for our hearts with God's word. The purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ 
with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. The Wellspring purpose shows us how all the disciplines work together. Now, if you're new to Wellspring, it might be a little uncomfortable to be talking about what's going on in our hearts. And I'm supposed to talk about, share what's going on in my thought life, my attitude, and then today talk about what's going on in my home, to talk about how sin impacts our household and the responsibilities we have to be a gospel influence. You know, that might all feel pretty personal. But we need to understand what Christ has done for us in the gospel. Jesus frees us to share our lives, to shepherd our hearts, to live out the gospel in our homes, and to live that out with one another. He has satisfied all of our penalty against all of our sin. And there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has purchased new life for us. We are adopted as children of God. And so now we can use God's word in our own hearts and in our own homes to make much of him and to help one another do the same. And so what a privilege. God uses us to strengthen the church. And so discipline one, the heart, the faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. This is drawing near to God in his word and prayer day by day and letting God's word shape who we are, taking hold of God's word and using it to direct our thoughts, our priorities, our desires, so that we become more and more like Christ in frequently remembering who God is and what he has done for us in the gospel we are fortified to die to ourselves and live for Christ. Now, discipline two, the home says the faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers with her heart fixed on God and his word. Our household is the first place that should benefit from Christ's work in our lives. No matter what our role is, if you're a roommate, a sister, a daughter, a mother, a grandmother, a wife, even if you live alone, your home is a God-given opportunity to live for Christ, to encourage others to know and follow Jesus. By renewing our minds with God's word, we find the wisdom we need to be the aroma of Christ in our homes and in our families, both in what we say and what we do. Finally, Discipline 3 Ministry says, with a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So discipline one and discipline two equip us for discipline three, to shine the light of Christ in our church and wherever God puts us. All of these disciplines go together. You don't master one and then move on. These are all disciplines we cultivate all the time at the same time. And each discipline strengthens the other disciplines. Your own personal time with the Lord and his word and your own faithfulness in your home will be weaker without your life being joined together with others in the body of Christ. And these are God's good instruments for doing his work in our lives and for using us in one another's lives 
so that together we grow in Christ-likeness and glorify the Lord. So let's pray. Lord, you are worthy. You're worthy of all worship. You're worthy to be trusted and obeyed. You are worthy of our wonder and our awe. You truly are impressive. How impressive that you would save rebels and make us your own children and change our hearts to follow you. Lord, we are so thankful. Lord, in each one of us who has been born again, Lord, that you would give us a heart to love you and to follow you and obey you, and you would also give us everything that these weak hearts need to be tended and shepherded and cared for so that we grow and are ready to meet you face to face one day. Lord, I pray for the time in discussion groups. Lord, would you please just direct every word that is said. I pray that you would help the groups to talk together about the homework and about the lesson in a way that prepares each one to um, just to follow you with joy the rest of this day and this week. In Jesus' name, amen.